We've been in a series this summer on the book of Proverbs, and if you missed last week, Monty Spurgeon, our student ministry pastor, walked us through um, teaching on Proverbs, and he did an unbelievable job. He really did. And, and as I went back, I was down at the Franklin campus last week, but as I went back and watched Monty teach, I was just filled with gratitude for the gifts God's given him, for the way he loves our students. And I just wanted to let y'all know our student ministry does an incredible job Monty leads that team, but they're a bunch of amazing individuals. So I just want to thank Monty and Will and Stephanie and Shelly and Chelsea and Brett and all the dozens of volunteers, many of you in the room that serve in that ministry. Keep going strong. We're cheering you on and we're grateful for you. One of the things I've loved about this series is it's given us a chance as teachers to kind of pick and choose some proverbs that have meant something to us personally, or maybe a proverb that was particularly relevant to our time and place. And so before I tell you about the proverb I'm going to teach this morning, I want to tell you a story about why this proverb is personal to me. When I was at Dallas Seminary, the class that I was most excited about getting to was the first preaching class, because I came to seminary excited about that part of ministry. I wanted to learn how to preach. And so you know, I get to seminary, and I wanted to sign up for the preaching class right away, and they said, that's not how it works. You got to go through these prerequisites. You got to take these Bible classes and get into some of the language stuff. And then you can take uh, preaching class, whatever it was, PM 101 or whatever for pastoral ministry 101. And so I waited and waited and studied and worked. And finally, I got to take the class and I was excited, but I was also nervous because I've already invested a year or two into this. And I'm thinking, what happens if I actually can't? preach. <laughs> you know, well, what then? You know, because that's really what I wanted to do. So I was nervous about it. Went through the first three or four weeks of class and, you know, just really was diligent in how I was approaching the study and all this because it really mattered to me. And it was coming up the time where we were going to have a chance to actually put into practice what we've been learning by preaching a sermon. And so this is going to be my very first sermon I've ever preached in my life. And the way it works was you have about 10 minutes as, you know, much shorter than what you guys are getting today, by the way, but about 10 minutes, and uh, you, you, you got to preach from a proverb, and the reason they chose proverbs is because they're nice and short. It gives you just a little bit of text to dig your teeth into because it was your first time, and you're going to be evaluated by all your classmates and the professor. All right, so super nervous. And it got to the class where he was going to give out the assignments on proverbs. Oh, that was the other thing. You didn't get to pick your proverb. So I wanted Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know, trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, etc. But I said, okay, I'm sure he's going to pick good Proverbs for us. And so he called us up to the front one at a time, and, and he gave us a reference. And it, he would read it out the reference, and it was printed on this little page. He didn't read the proverb, just the reference. So I'm S in the alphabet, sweet, all right? So we had to wait through three-fourths of the folks. I'm like, man, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is gone. I was like, well, then I hope I get Proverbs, you know, whatever. And I recognize these other ones that are given out. I was like, man, all the good ones are gone. What am I going to get? And I went up there, and he handed me this slip of paper, and it said Proverbs 25, 16. I said, I don't know that proverb. So I went, went back to my desk, and I opened my Bible, and I looked up, and it said, if you find honey... Eat just enough, too much of it, and you will vomit. <laughs> that is not what I did. I did not laugh. I was really confused. I literally thought there was a typo in the number, like in the reference. I literally thought. So I stayed after class. I went up to Dr. Warren. I said, Dr. Warren, I think there's a typo in this. And he just smiled. <laughs> and he said, no, there's no typo. Have fun with that. 
So I went home and I went to Jody and I was like, poor me, poor me. Look at my proverb. All these other guys, they've got these great proverbs and I've got the vomiting proverb. <laughs> and she looked at me and she just smiled and said, good luck with that. And so I started diving into this proverb. And wouldn't you know it, in this quirky little text, I found something amazingly relevant for my life today that has stuck with me. And so I have chosen the first sermon I ever preached. I'm going to re-preach. Now, I've, I've expanded it out a little bit as I've, I've learned in life, but I'm literally going to teach the main ideas that I taught in seminary from this little proverb. And so I want to read it to you again. This time as our text for this moment, our day, and our body. And by the way, I'm going to keep it in the NIV because that was the translation that I preached from when I was in seminary. We'll put it on the screen. You can follow along. Our scripture passage for today is Proverbs 25, 16. If you find honey, eat just enough, too much of it, and you will vomit. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Now, this is one of those verses that when you read it, you think to yourself, uh, is there more going on or is it just what it says? I kind of hope there's more going on. Is this really just literally about how much honey to eat? Uh, let's talk about this. Let's dig into it a little bit. And the, the starting place that you have to go to is you have to understand what honey represented to the ancient culture. Today, honey is no big deal for us. You can go in the grocery store and you go into the aisle that sells honey and you know you can just choose your variety and your size. Uh, it, it mostly comes in plastic bottles shaped like bears. It's not very expensive. I'm willing to bet 90 plus percent of you have honey in your cabinet and your cupboard right now. And you can have it anytime you want because it's just right there. But in the ancient culture, the culture that this text was written, and this is a proverb of Solomon. This is one of the ones specifically attributed to Solomon. The days of Solomon, honey was a big deal. Only the wealthiest people just had access to it whenever they wanted to. Maybe, you know, if you weren't wealthy, if you're, you know, in the middle or in the, in the poor class, maybe if you were lucky enough a neighbor might have some from when they were out hiking one day and happened to find a, a beehive and were willing to brave the bees and get a little bit and put it in a clay jar. And if you're really lucky, maybe they would share a little bit with you on occasion. Notice the first word in this text. If. If you find honey... The situation Solomon is imagining here is if you're out and you're, you're, you're hiking or you're, you're out in the wilderness and you happen to be lucky enough to stumble upon some honey or you happen to be fortunate enough, wealthy enough that you have access to it, if you find honey. So this got me thinking about, you know, how unique honey is in the world. It, it's, it's a completely natural substance, but it's not directly created by God per se. It, it, the potential for honey was embedded in the flowers that God made and in the bees that God made. And then there's this wonderful natural process 
that happens when the bees pollinate and all these kinds of things. And the net result of that is the bees produce honey. How amazing this is that there's a natural substance in the world that tastes as sweet as this, that tastes as good as this, that's just out there being produced out there for us to enjoy in a sense. And I think Solomon is reflecting on this and he's saying, if you are this fortunate, let me give you some advice. Now, in the Old Testament, and this is true in the ancient context broader, but for sure, specifically in the Old Testament, honey was used to represent more than just honey. It was used to represent the sweet things on earth, the the things that you don't have to have, but they're pleasurable. So your body doesn't need honey, but honey is delightful. So how did God describe the land that he was going to give the Hebrew people when they were wandering around the wilderness? He says, I'm going to lead you in a land overflowing with milk and honey. Have you ever thought about that? Milk and honey. What's the significance of milk and honey? Start with milk. Milk represents the basics. You have to have milk. Like a baby is born, it has to have milk. Milk is what will keep you alive. It's the essential things in life. But honey represents abundance. Honey is the non-essential but pleasurable things that God has created. So a land overflowing with milk and honey is the basics and the abundance. And God is saying, you're not only just going to have what you need, you're going to have what you need and you're going to have honey too. You're going to have all this extra stuff. That's all carried in that phrase. Solomon now was living out the fulfillment of that promise. So, you know, Israelites wandered around. They finally got into the land, long period of the judges. Then you you had King Saul. Then you had King David. You had King Solomon. The significance of Solomon's reign is it was the high point of Hebrew influence and culture. Like, it was, like, at this point in time, when Solomon was writing these Proverbs, or more than likely, you know, dictating these Proverbs for his servants to write down, the kingdom was wealthy. It was overflowing. He was literally living out the fulfillment of being in this land of milk and honey. And, and God said, you can ask for anything you want, Solomon. I'll give it to you. This is when he was younger. And Solomon said, I want wisdom. And that request so pleased God that God said, I'm going to make you the wisest person who's ever lived. And I'm, you're, you're going to be wealthy as well. And so this wisest man who ever lived was wise enough to recognize the danger of overindulging in the sweet things in life, the the non-essential pleasurable things that honey represents. So this is what honey represents in this context. It's the pleasures of life. This proverb is about how to manage life's pleasures in a way that doesn't result in your destruction. With that in mind, listen to it again. If you find honey, eat just enough. Too much of it and you'll vomit. So when when Solomon taught this proverb, when when he spoke it, wrote it, went out training his sons, the future princes and and future king of, of the land, There's no way Solomon could have imagined the culture that we live in. He could not have imagined a place like this. A a place where, you know, honey is such a commodity that we don't even think about it. Like, the best thing that they had, like the sweetest thing that they could find is just a 
a pantry commodity for us. Never has there been a society that needs Proverbs 25, 16 more. Think about the environment we live in. Pleasures, comfort, conveniences, so accessible, ubiquitous. Even in Solomon's day, you had to be like very comparably powerful and wealthy to have margin in your life, time and money for pleasurable things. But in our day, man, even you know, regardless of your income, you have access to profound, amazing, incredible conveniences and pleasures. Let me describe to you the first two hours of my day this morning. I woke up in my... 14-inch thick luxury memory foam mattress. I had instant hot water from a dial, and it was a little too hot, you know, at first, so I like dialed it back, so it was like the perfect temperature. Uh, I put on comfortable clothing. I ate a delicious breakfast. Hot coffee magically came out of a machine into a cup at a push of a button. I drove to church on beautiful, clean, smooth streets in a climate-controlled, self-powered vehicle with my choice of any song I wanted, thanks to Spotify. Now, I did all of that without thinking a thing about it. My guess is your morning was probably fairly similar. Our days are so filled with things that make life comfortable and enjoyable that it's easy just to let these things become the the focal point or maybe a better analogy is the the operating system in the background. And, And the goal of life, honestly, if we're not careful, can become avoiding discomfort by moving from one comfortable, pleasurable experience to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, until we lay down our heads again at the end of the day on our 14 inch memory foam mattress. And so I was thinking about, I was like, man, there's no way that life's about that. Now, please tell me life's about more than that. And, and that what our society is screaming out, they don't have words for it. I was like, life has to be about more than just comfort and convenience and pleasurable things. Guys, we're followers of Jesus Christ. And so we know life's about more than that. But, but if we believe life's about more than that, we've got to have a strategy for dealing with all the comforts and convenience and pleasures because if we don't, they're going to eat our lunch rather than the other way around. So what we need, and this is where I want to go with undergirding this text here in Proverbs 25, 16, is we need to develop a robust theology of pleasure. My guess is you probably hadn't thought much about that. A theology of pleasure. We need that more than, I believe, any society, any group of people have ever needed it before. So, so we're going to talk about this this morning. So here's the starting point. Most people associate pleasure with sin. That is sloppy theology. Most people associate pleasure with sin. That is wrong. That is sloppy theology. Uh, it's interesting. This is in our culture big time. Um, Shopping recently in the grocery store, I saw labels on like, you know, snacks and treats as like, you know, sinfully delicious. Uh, another, another phrase we use a lot is guilty pleasure. Um, another word that, that I think has been taken in our culture to mean something it never originally meant was the word naughty. 
It's like naughty is not good, guys. But in our culture, it's like, oh, you can be a little naughty. You know, that's kind of good. Be a little naughty. I mean, we associate pleasure with sin. Are pleasures the problem? Like, I'm talking about the, 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 the things in life that God designed to be pleasurable. Food, drink, relationships, entertainment. Are, are these things the problem? Solomon says, don't miss it in the text, if you've found honey, eat. Now, he's gonna put that modifier. We'll get to that. But he starts off not by saying, if you find honey, run away because you don't want to vomit. <laughs> Hide from it. Just do anything you can to separate yourself from that pleasure. Does not say that. He says, if you find honey, eat. That's the very first word. That's actually the verb that's kind of carrying the emphasis. Eat. No one, in my opinion, is more helpful in developing a theology of pleasure than C.S. Lewis. Lewis has written, or I guess he wrote, Lewis wrote a lot about pleasure. And, and I want to read you just one thing he wrote about this. This comes from Screwtape Letters. I know many of you are familiar with this book, but some of you aren't. So let me describe the premise. Otherwise, this quote will not make any sense. Screwtape Letters is very cleverly written from the perspective of a master demon training an apprentice demon. And so Uncle Screwtape is the master demon. He's writing letters to this younger demon and he's like training him how to like mess with God and mess with God's people. And so this is what the, the master demon says about pleasure. He says, never forget when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees in which he has forbidden. That's a good starting place to develop a theology of pleasure. Pleasure is good. Pleasure is God-given. We through our sinful nature and through, honestly, demonic influence, over time have taken the good pleasures of life and we've twisted them and they've become twisted things as we have pursued them at times or in ways or in degrees which God has forgiven, forbidden. The problem is not the pleasures. The problem comes when we consume God-given pleasures outside of God's intention. So that's a good starting place. That was a pleasurable song, that, but needed to exit the room. So thank you. <laughs> At times and ways that God is forbidden. Okay. Proverbs 25, 16 talks about one of the pleasure, one of the problems with pleasures. Not the only one, but one of the problems when you, when you misuse pleasures is overindulgence. And that's the specific problem that this proverb is identifying. This is what Solomon is saying. He's saying too much and you'll vomit. In other words, the inevitable result of overindulging in life's pleasures is you become sick. And obviously, honey will make you physically sick. Overindulging in some other kinds of life's pleasures will make you sick in all kinds of other ways. Um, a literal way to think about this is the very thing that brought you pleasure going down will bring you displeasure coming back up. I remember learning this lesson and as a very young child. Early, early on, I loved American cheese. 
I don't know what it is about kids and American cheese because honestly, it's disgusting to me now. But when I was little, I think one of the things was like how it's in these individual wrappers and it's so satisfying to like peel off the plastic and you pull the little, you know, exactly square. It didn't bother me when I was a kid, but it should have. It's exactly square. And I remember one day my parents were in another room or they were upstairs and I snuck over to the refrigerator and I pulled out one of those whole big like stacks, you know, of packages of American cheese. And I opened it up and I peeled the wrappers from every single one of those slices of American cheese. And I just started playing with my food. <laughs> I realized that if you fold the square piece of cheese in half, you know, it kind of breaks apart. Now you got two pieces of cheese and you fold those in half again. Now you got four little pieces of cheese and you fold again. And I started making little American cheese towers <laughs> and I stacked them in front of me all over the table. I literally can picture this in my head. I was sitting at our kitchen table. All around me were little stacks of American cheese. I actually wasn't intending on eating them all. But I realized when my parents came back, they would be mad at me for making a mess on the table. So I thought the easiest way to dispose of the evidence <laughs> was to eat it. And so I ate a stack of cheese and another stack of cheese and another stack of cheese and another stack of cheese. And at some point in time, the inevitable outcome came to pass. And then there was an even bigger mess on the table. Now, I'm sorry to put that image in your head. It comes from the Bible. <laughs> Most of us have learned that lesson. Too much of a good thing makes you sick. We've learned that from our earliest age. Why do we still struggle with it? Why do we still overindulge in all kinds of areas of our lives? What is going on in the lower levels of our hearts? The, the, the emotions and desires that, that causes us to make choices that in our heads we know, ah, it's probably not smart for me to keep going. Why does it feel sometimes like we have no control? I've thought about this a lot. Now, th this is stuff that I, I wasn't thinking about when I was in seminary. But as I came to this sermon to sort of rewrite it and, and reframe it for us this morning, I, I was thinking a lot about the desires of my heart. And, and here's what I realized, and I, I think this is probably true for us collectively. We tend to overindulge when we are seeking from a thing more than it can give us. And I'll explain that, but let me repeat it first. We tend to overindulge when we are seeking from a thing more than it can give us. So we turn to pleasurable food for more than just food. This is true with all the pleasures of life. We try to, to squeeze out of them things that they were never designed to give us. Things like satisfaction, things like wholeness, things like comfort in the midst of pain, things like validation in the midst of my insecurity. So in this sense, it's easy for the pleasures of life to become a way of rescuing us from an unfulfilling world. Another way to say it, they can become our salvation from disappointment. Disappointment. 
Now, sitting in here this morning, if I say, you know, who, who's your salvation? Who's your savior? You, you're you're going to say the right answer. Jesus, we've been singing about that already. We've been proclaiming it with our lips. But often, day to day, it, it's the comforts, the pleasures of life that we look to for rescue. In this sense, we're making them functional saviors. Oh, Jesus is my savior. He's the one that's rescued me from my sin and he's the one that's that's, that's earned for me eternal life, but I need a little something down here to help me in my struggle, in my disappointment. And then that little thing, that was good, I need a little bit more of that. And that's how these work. You don't have to be full on addicted to a substance or a particular pleasure of life to experience what I'm talking about. But it can lead to that for sure. Now the good thing for us this morning is Solomon does not just identify a problem, he also identifies a solution. Do you see the solution? Someone shouted out. What's Solomon's solution to the problem of overindulgence? Shout it out. Just enough. He says, eat just enough, just enough. So I started thinking about what does that really mean? And the first thing I like to do, you know, when there's a phrase that I want to dig more into, and this is a good Bible study tip, is just read that phrase in a bunch of different English translations. We, we've, we're blessed to have so many great translations. And you'll, you'll kind of see the translators sort of coming at it from slightly different angles, and it can fill in some gaps. So I'm going to put up on the screen different ways, uh, yes, that's it, where this is translated. NIV, eat just enough. ESV, NRSV, eat only enough for you. Eat only what you need. Eat only as much as you need. Eat only what is sufficient for you. Eat only as much as sufficient for you. Eat just the right amount. Now, on one level, you look at those, they're all saying the same thing, but they're using words that, kinda, that, that are helpful, this, this idea of sufficiency. You know, this idea of, of, of it, it's, it meets the need. It's sufficient for the need for me, you know, whatever it is. So I started digging into some words and I found some help when I, when I did a, a deeper study on the word enough because that's a key word in our text. Like, eat enough, eat just enough. How do I know when enough is? I looked up enough in the dictionary. Random House Dictionary defines enough as the amount that is sufficient for the purpose. That's actually helpful because if I can determine what the purpose is of the pleasures of life, I may be able to have some help to know what is sufficient for the purpose. Another way to think about it, in order to understand what enough of anything is, enough food, enough love, enough money, Enough of anything. You have to understand the purpose behind the thing itself to know how much enough is. So what is the purpose for the pleasures of life? Good question. If you think, even subconsciously, that the purpose behind a pleasure in life is your satisfaction or your validation or your wholeness, you will never find enough. That's not his purpose. And if you 
subconsciously, consciously or subconsciously, think that the purpose of this is to make you whole or give you peace or relief or kind of bring you into some kind of satisfaction or make you feel better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you're always going to overindulge because you're seeking from that thing something it can't give. So it's just like, oh, it's, that's a taste of what I'm looking for. Let me have some more. But it will never fully satisfy you. So again, we know this. I'm reminding you of things that we need to hear again. So this brings us to a very important question. Again, I'll restate it. What is the purpose of pleasure? Why did God make it? Why does food taste good? And, and why do so many things in life delight our senses? Why do we even have senses? Theologically, I believe there are two good answers to this question. What is the purpose of pleasure? To bring us joy and to bring God glory. To bring us joy and to bring God glory. And I want to unpack each of those just real briefly. Two good answers. The first reason God created pleasure is to bring us joy. We talked about this in our Generous God series, for those of you that were with us for that. You know, we said God could have made the universe in an infinite number of ways. He chose to make it with, you know, 10,000 varieties of flowers instead of just one. He chose to make it with flavors that have, are still being discovered today by us. These combinations of delicious things and delightful things and sunsets and mountains and beautiful rivers. And he also chose to make us in a way to receive and enjoy pleasure. He could have designed us differently. His generosity is on display in the pleasurable things on this earth. Take you back to the Sermon on the Mount for a minute. One of the things Jesus said is he said, he said God is like a good father who gives good gifts. So I've been thinking about that. It's obviously Father's Day and, and I was reflecting on, on, on the gifts that I give to my daughters and when I give one of my daughters a gift, I want to see them enjoy it. I don't want them to, to keep it in the box and put it in the closet and say, oh, I, I think I shouldn't enjoy that. That's too good. That's, that's too much. That's, that might lead me down some bad path. I want her to open it up. I want her to enjoy it. Now, I want her to enjoy whatever it is in the right way, whether it's a you know, screen. God help us with screens. Whatever it is, but I want her to enjoy it. Now, Part of God's purpose for pleasures is our joy. It is not the whole story. We'll get to his glory in a minute, but part of it is our joy. What's the application of that? Enjoy pleasures in ways that maximize your joy. This is a fun thing to preach, right? I bet we've, I've never heard a pastor say, like, go pursue your, your, your own maximum pleasure. It's all in context. <laughs> context matters. But we should engage the God-given pleasures in ways that maximize our joy. Let me explain what I'm talking about. When I wrote that sentence yesterday, I was sipping on a Coke Zero, a Zero Sugar Vanilla. Now, that may not be all of y'all's taste, okay? But I, I enjoy Coke Zero. And, and the, the little vanilla was like a really nice thing going on with that. Um, <laughs> If you're a doctor, don't come up to me later and tell me how bad that is for me, okay? I probably already know. <laughs> 
but I was enjoying it in moderation, let's just say that. So I was sipping on this Coke Zero, and I just wrote this, like, like how are we gonna engage the pleasures in ways that maximize our joy? And the, thing, the first thing I realized is I have not even been thinking about this. I've been drinking it like it's just the drink. You know, it's just like water. Do you realize it's only been in the last 100 years or so that we've had colas and the flavorings and all? That's a gift. It's a gift. And I was just, you know, chugging it down, whatever, like it was water. And so the first thought is I need to enjoy this thoughtfully, not thoughtlessly. So then the other key to how to maximize joy is actually moderation. When you enjoy a, a pleasure in moderation, it actually maximizes your joy because of this thing called the law of diminishing returns. <laughs> Y'all have heard of this? It's why the first bite of cake is the best bite of cake. Yeah, it's why by the time you get to that like third or fourth slice of pizza, you're kind of like, eh, it's not that good anymore. <laughs> there is this thing called the law of diminishing returns. So it, it actually helps us moderation. If you want to maximize your joy, consume something thoughtfully, not thoughtlessly, and consume it in moderation because of the law of diminishing returns. These are things that God's just kind of like put into the world. All right, purpose number one, our joy. So maximize it. Purpose number two, God's glory. The primary purpose. God created pleasures of life for the same reason he created everything else in life. His glory. In James 1.17, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. According to James, any good and perfect gift is an opportunity to glorify the Father of heavenly lights, to recognize we serve a God of creativity and love and beauty. So when you start to think about something that you're eating or drinking or experiencing or doing or some kind of pleasure in your life and you start to see it as not about satisfying you it's about him it's about his glory then you're actually realizing oh no it's not about satisfying me but it is about leading to me to the to the one who can satisfy me See, when I give my daughter a good gift, if it's something that she really expects to enjoy or she's really enjoying, she will come give me a hug. It will draw me to her. So we must learn to become a people who enjoy the pleasures of life in ways that lead us to God, not away from him. There's no need to hide. All pleasures are not guilty pleasures. How do we enjoy God? How do we bring glory to God? And those things go together. Well, let's talk about that. I think it starts with recognizing pleasure is a means to an end, not an end of itself. Pleasure is a means to an end, not an end of itself. And what is the end? What, what is it? Well, here's something I'll put on the screen that can kind of summarize this, kind of big idea for the message, so we'll put it up there. Engage the pleasures of life as a means for joyful worship rather than a means for personal satisfaction. Now, the beautiful thing about this sentence is when you engage them in joyful worship, there is deep satisfaction you will experience. But that is not the goal. The goal is joyful worship. Your joy, God's glory 
thinking about pleasure this way shifts the focus from me to him. And it allows us to actually experience fulfillment, satisfaction in pleasure. So leave that up there for a minute. I, I just thought I'd give you guys two very practical things to do, you know, just to try to get this as practical as I can. And these are just things that I've thought about and, and that I've, I've done over years of my life. The first one is, years ago, I, I sat down and I wrote a list of all of my favorite things. <laughs> it's a little deeper than that, but that's basically what it is. I call it my joy gifts list. And I read this every now and then, and I add things to it. Occasionally, I'll take something off if I you know, lose a taste for something or whatever. But these are things that I, I want to continually do because they lead me to worship God. So let me just read a few of them off my list just for you to get a taste of this. The first day that feels like fall. Listening to my favorite music, and then I list what it is, and that changes quite a bit, by the way. The beginning of a new college football season. May not be your taste, but that brings me joy. Um, getting away for a weekend with my wife. The first Christmas music of the year. Staring at the mountains. Using my gifts to serve God. Discovering a new taste that I love. Chocolate chip cookies with milk. You know, I, I could go on and on. I've got dozens of these. I'm going to stop right there. The idea is be intentional about it. Make a list. Say, these are the things that I enjoy in life and I'm gonna pursue these things to the maximization of my joy in God's glory. Number two, so that's number one, make, make, a, make a joy list. Number two, practice the spiritual discipline of enjoyment. That's a fun discipline to lean into. What do I mean the spiritual discipline of enjoyment? In other words, practice engaging the pleasures of your life as a means of worship not as a, a false pursuit of your own satisfaction. Um, what will this look like? It can be every meal you eat. It can be anything delightful that comes in your life. You just simply acknowledge, enjoy, give thanks. And we'll put those three steps on the screen just so you can kind of see how that works. And here's how you do this. Acknowledge the giver, enjoy the gift, give thanks. It is that simple but what I found for me is when I will consciously do this, it takes the enjoyment outside of the own hollow attempt to cure something inside of me and it reflects it up and it maximizes my joy and God's glory. So we're literally gonna practice this this morning. As some of you, I hope this is where this is going. You should have gotten a honey stick when you walked in the door. If you did not... Don't be afraid to stand up right now and go outside those doors. You'll find them. Because I really want you to practice this. Now, if you don't like honey, then just imagine, okay? But if you, if you enjoy honey and you're willing to participate in this, this is going to be like a practice experience for us to kind of get this rhythm in our minds. And so don't do anything with this yet. Just kind of have it in your hands. Um, we're going to walk through these three steps. Acknowledge the giver. Enjoy the gift. Give thanks. This does not have to take long. This is not complicated. It doesn't have to be a big prayer. It doesn't have to be a prayer at all. It could just be your thoughts. What do we mean acknowledge the giver? It's like before you enjoy something, you recognize who it came from and its purpose, your joy, God's glory. So we're gonna, in just a minute, we're gonna walk through these steps. The second step is to enjoy the gift. Thoughtfully, not thoughtlessly, in moderation, you can't overindulge with one of these little guys, and we're going to savor it. We're, we're going to let the, the taste sensation flood our, our sensory experience 
let it take us back to maybe moments of our life that we have had a similar taste or similar experience and thank God for that. And that's step number three, give thanks. That's all it is. Acknowledge the giver, enjoy the gift, give thanks. So let's practice this. Y'all want to, the band's gonna come out and and I'm gonna lead us through. And I want you, I mean, I thought about, is this too silly to do? And And I was like, no, this is a worship service. We've worshiped God through singing, through prayer, through hearing God's word, and now we're gonna worship through eating. We are gonna worship with honey. And how beautiful it is that we have such a close connection to this text that was written 3,000 years ago that we sit here this morning being able to taste the same thing that Solomon had on his mind when he wrote this word. So let's do this together. First first of all, Father, we acknowledge you as the giver of honey, this delicious, delightful resource that brings joy to our senses. And now, men and women, let me teach you how to do this properly. You're gonna turn this kind of vertically and you're just gonna bite down so that you pinch the top open. So bite down, put it vertically, bite down with your teeth. Taste the honey. Just let it sit there for a minute. Just enjoy it. Close your eyes if it helps you enjoy it, but just enjoy it. Maybe it reminds you of the first time when you were young, or maybe it reminds you of a favorite dish, or maybe it reminds you of a delightful experience. Just be grateful. Just enjoy all that's going on in your body right now through that taste. And then we're just gonna thank you, God. We're gonna thank you for this gift. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you through this pleasure. You've given it to us. You delight in us. And we glorify you through it. In Jesus' name, amen.